0: be not only a missionary, but we refer to him as the father of modern-day missions. It was through his influence that Britain's first missionary society was formed. We would call that today a missionary agency. He went as a missionary to India. He served there for over 40 years. He and his co-workers translated the entire Bible into 25 different Indian dialects and languages and they translated the New Testament into a total of 40. Amazing work. Many books have been written about William Carey, but to the best of my knowledge, there was not one book written about his sister. He had a bedridden sister who had been that way since she was a child. And from India, he wrote letters to her about the details of their ministry and the problems of the work. And in her physical condition, hour after hour, Carrie's sister, week after week, for over 50 years, would pray about those things that William wrote to her about. And so we have to wonder, from a human perspective, who was responsible for the success of that mission work in India? Was it William Carey, or was it his sister back in England who prayed for him and his co-workers? Whether you realize it or not, you can have and we can have a worldwide impact through prayers. This morning, let's look at the importance of prayer in the church. I mentioned to you Paul is writing to Timothy. He's going to address some areas of the church in the chapters to come. He's going to talk about the role of women, deacons, elders, role of the pastor as far as preaching and things like that. But today, he talks about prayer. Look at how he words it, I urge you then, it's an exhortation, it's, a, it's an admonishment, Paul to Timothy using his authority saying, first of all, of most importance, you need to make this a, a priority, pray, make prayers. Request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. We know that was a pattern of the early church. In Acts chapter 6, we find that the apostles, those who had been the original 12 disciples of Jesus, plus some changes there with Judas and Matthias and others, it said they gave themselves to prayer. Brothers, it said in Acts 6, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to to prayer in the ministry of the word. We're not only to pray. He says we are to use various types of prayer. He mentions first petitions or requests. That's the idea of offering a request for a felt need that you have. Healing of the sick. Getting a job. Meeting your needs. Blessing your family. Then he mentions the word prayer. And that's more general. That's a need for more wisdom. Need to grow in grace. And then he mentions intercession. All these are just various angles on the same theme of prayer. Intercession is the idea of going before God on behalf of others, praying for the needs of others, even as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Christ intercedes for us, it says in Hebrews 7. So we are to plead on behalf of others and not hold back. That's what intercession is. And last of all, he says, pray with thanksgiving, expressions of gratitude to God. And that is that God blesses us, he answers our prayers, and then in a sense, one writer said, we complete the circle. But as he answers our prayers, we go back to him and thank him for those blessings. And then he answers again, and we keep keep responding with thanks and praise. Do you realize that thanksgiving will be the only type of prayer there is in heaven? There will be no confession of sin. There'll be no need to intercede on behalf of others. That's why it tells us in the book of Revelation that all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. So it's true that all other forms of prayer will have ceased in heaven except for thanksgiving so we're to we're to make it a priority to pray first of all he says and our prayer is not to be limited in scope it's not only that we pray but we are to pray for all people it says in verse one all people now i mentioned to you you got you, we have to take the bible in its context and the context of first timothy is is dealing with false teachers and so as timothy was to deal with false teachers one of the errors in their teaching was to make it very exclusive so god is only concerned about us or he's only concerned about a very narrow small group and so that's one of the reasons now paul says to him pray pray for all people for all people it's not a place to be elitist or exclusive because it's natural for us just to pray about our own needs or our own immediate needs with the family around us or our closest friends or only what we are involved in. It's my tendency to pray only for my country and not for other countries or only for my race or only for my people or something like that and to be very narrow in scope. But God's desire for the church, according to this, is that our scope should be worldwide. For all people, not restricted in any way. So no matter how far away men may be or in what sphere of life they dwell, our prayers can be effective. And he mentions, first of all, those in authority. He says for all people, all kinds of people. Now it's like, for example, for kings and those in authority over you. Why does he mention the kings or the ruling class? probably because it was their tendency and our tendency to leave them out of our prayers. We try to pray for our leaders regularly here in church because we're told to do so. We tend to leave them out of our prayers, especially if they're hostile to our faith. But they may need more prayer than anyone else because of that. We take the word king today to mean the state. The civil government. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, we may say, wait, that's in Peter and this is Paul telling Timothy. They don't know about modern leaders. They don't know about how bad some of these people can be. Oh, Really? We may think, well, the king must have been a good person in Paul's day. No, it was Nero. You know about Nero. If you, haven't, you don't know the facts about him, you've probably seen some movies about him. <laughs> and here's what history tells us, that he was just three years old when his father died. That was little loss to the boy since his father had been a murderer, a bully, and a cheat. His mother took over the family's trade and continues the boy's education. She, Nero's mother, murdered his stepfather with poison mushrooms. While still young, Nero committed his first murder, killing a teenage boy who stood in his way, and Nero watched him die with calloused indifference. He married at age 15, but he soon had that wife killed. He he married again and murdered his second wife, too. In order to marry the third time, he murdered the husband of the woman that he wanted. His mother got on his nerves, so he arranged her murder. At age 31, he was sentenced to death by flogging. He escaped to the house of a slave. And he gave the infant church its first taste of things to come. Now, it's while this man was the emperor, the king, so to speak, that Paul says, pray for those in authority. We need to obey that. We need to pray for all kinds of people. Starting with those in positions of authority. And he says, here's what you should pray for them. Or the purpose of the prayers for them, in verse 2, is that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. It doesn't say that we may all be rich, that we may all experience certain things. He says, pray, pray for the kings and those in authority that we may lead quiet or peaceful and quiet lives. The idea here is that government, the government, the governing system over a country may achieve peace and security to enable us to pursue our lives. That's the prayer. You want to know a specific prayer you can pray for our nation or other nations is basically that there, there would be peace and security so that we can go about doing what God wants us to do. To live in peace, to be free from calamity, It says, in all godliness and holiness, that we might be devoted. Those are words of devotion to God and worth conduct. We can't appreciate this, those of us that have grown up here in America, as much as other nations. A couple of times I've been able to go to Cuba. I remember hearing missions is a common theme as they talk among themselves. That we would be at church gatherings and someone would say, Well, I'm going to, we're sending this person as a missionary. And they're going. And then I realized everywhere they were going were missionaries were on that island because they couldn't leave. I thought, look at the freedom we have. We send, mission, we send youth mission trips across national borders. And their view was they're, they're, they're following the Great Commission to the best that they could with a former government that would not let them leave. And so if they're in Havana, they may be going to be missionaries in Baracoa or one of the other cities like that. What happens when there is disorder and chaos in a nation is that typically the people that hurt the most are the weaker believers, the weaker members of the church. And many can be drawn away from the faith and from confessing Christ and certainly not living lives of godliness and holiness. And our prayers can change that. It's been over 20 years since the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall. You've probably read a lot about it. That's been analyzed a number of times from a political standpoint and others. But from the early days on, we heard that basically it was a prayer movement that brought that about. And there had been some significant things happen through churches there before the wall came down. Well, I was reading a summary of it the other day. Let me just paraphrase it for you. It said, at the St. Nicholas Church In Germany, strong and weak believers gathered for prayer during the days of the communist domination. The nation had wearied of ineffective political rallies. They had wearied of demonstrations protesting the cruel regime. And so the prayer, the prayer groups, the believers grew weary too, and the numbers fell. At times, only maybe 12 people or fewer prayed at these gatherings at this massive church building. Then in 1989, 22 years ago, is that right? 22 years ago, the Holy Spirit ignited the hearts of his people and hundreds began to come to the church to pray. This just was a movement of God in people's hearts. East German troops blocked the exits of the Autobahn on the days of the prayer meetings to keep people from the town. They didn't want people coming to these, so they would block the exits. Systematic arrest of the prayer group leaders were orders, uh, ordered for the days leading up to the prayer meetings. They'd go and arrest the leaders, thinking they could diminish the number of the crowd. Communist sympathizers even filled the seats of the church so that there would be no place for those wanting to pray. The praying crowd still came. They stood inside and outside the church while the communists at first listened, and then many of those joined with the prayers. When the numbers of those praying reached the thousands, troops were summoned to come in to handle the anticipated revolt. But the people did not revolt, but they continued to pray with candles in both hands to show that they had no weapons. You've seen those pictures probably of many of the people there with candles in their hands. Word of the courageous and persistent prayer swept the nation. Through the corporate prayer movement, though the corporate prayer movement lasted only a few weeks with those large numbers, the communists lost all public support. The government collapsed, and German history began a new chapter, but this time without barbed wire and machine guns and tanks. This is an interesting comment that was made afterwards by a member of the Communist Central Committee. He later wrote, We had planned for everything. We were prepared for everything, but not for candles and prayer. We're to pray for all kinds of people and those in authority over us. It tells us in verses 3 and 4, because this is good and pleases God our Savior. It's not to please ourselves. It's not for our own contentment. It's because it honors and it pleases God. Look at verse 4. Who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? What are we to make of such a verse like that. Does it mean that everyone will be saved? Well, the issue here seems to be the, the definition of all. He wants all men to be saved. Because back in verse 1, first of all, that request, prayer, so forth, be made for all. All men. It means all kinds of men. It doesn't mean all 6.6 billion people on the planet, by name, every person, but all kinds, that our prayers have no limits based on a person's country or nationality or race or anything like that, but all kinds. And so here, it's that God desires all kinds of people to be saved. That's on God's heart. And so if we are to to be exclusive in our prayers and limit our prayers only to certain groups of people or certain types of people, then we don't understand the heart of God because the heart of God is for all nations to hear and to be saved. Now, you know me, and you know that I have 100% conviction that the Bible teaches the doctrine of divine election. God choosing some to eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 2 says we ought always to thank God for you brothers loved by the Lord because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. Ephesians 1 says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I think that's clear from Scripture. It's also clear from Scripture, such verses as this, that God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That does not mean that God wills from the standpoint of decree that every individual be saved. If he did, then all would be saved, since we cannot resist his decrees, his will. So what we have here is an expression of God's desire that brought about the incarnation and death of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So it was God's desire to see all people saved. And that's what drove Paul to give his life to worldwide missions. It's not within our capability, nor is it our responsibility to solve the puzzle of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But we just live with attention, as John Packer says I live with attention. It is our task to make disciples of all nations, to preach the gospel universally to every kind of person. It is our mission to proclaim what Christ wants us to proclaim. And that is why Jonathan Edwards, one of the human channels in our own history in the Great Awakening, said When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers. Of his people. Think about the ministry of prayer. There are no special talents required. You don't need to have a gift of prayer. You don't need to be able to stand up and teach the Bible in front of a group. You don't need to have a, a particular giftedness or personality type. This ministry is open to all, of all ages. You may be blind or deaf or young or old or strong or weak or rich or poor or black or yellow or white, it doesn't matter. God says we are to pray. He goes on and says that we're to do this because of our mediator, that there's only one mediator by which we can be made right with God, and that's the man Christ Jesus. So what makes him unique in this day when it's the most unpolitically correct thing to say is that Christ is the only way to God? Well, first, he's unique. He is the man Christ Jesus. He became a human being. He's both God and man. He is God from the beginning, and yet he derived his human nature in the womb of his mother Mary. And the New Testament bears witness to him as the unique God-man. There's no parallel anywhere in history. So whether you believe it or not, at least it's unique. The second part that makes him, qualifies him to be our mediator, is what he did. He gave himself, it says here, for all. A ransom. A ransom is, means to free someone to loosen someone from bondage by a payment Jesus paid the payment God demanded for sin that you and I have sinned against God all of us have in our thought words and actions and the punishment for that is death and so someone has to pay for that either we have to die or someone else dies in our place and that's what Jesus did he became our substitute he paid the ransom no one else can do that for you no one else has done that for you he laid out before God the payment And so with this in mind, we recognize that his death is sufficient for all people, all kinds of people. And yes, it's efficient for the chosen, but it doesn't limit it in our responsibility to make it known to all people. So I start with the assumption that God has his people everywhere. And we're never to limit the scope of world missions. The gospel must be preached to all and salvation must be offered to all. So here's the heart of this message. I want to tell you this. I want to read you a quotation by the late Leonard Ravenhill. And then I want to lead us in a pastoral prayer. Okay? The heart of this passage is that we as a church are to be a praying people to come to know the truth. If you think about how few people really know just the basics of the faith. About who Jesus was, what made him unique, and what he did. Most people don't know there's one mediator, and a ransom's been paid. They've been raised in schools where they've never heard about it. They've been raised by parents who said, find it out on your own. We can't figure it out. Maybe you can. They're thrust into a world, some with several graduate degrees behind their names, and they may be bright, and they may be competent in a certain career or their technicalities, but they know nothing about the simple message of one God and one mediator between God and man. And so don't assume that the person who delivers your mail or the person who does your dry cleaning or who waits on you at the grocery store, do not assume that they all know this. Don't assume those you go to school with or play on the same team with or sit in class with understand even the basics of the message, but it starts with praying for them. And being like Paul, also a witness to them. So here's some practical suggestions on making prayer a priority. One, find some like-minded people. Meet with others. I am so grateful to be in a church that has small groups. And most of the prayer in our congregation takes place in small groups. A low number, a low number of people this fall involved in small groups in our congregation is 400. Over 400 people in our congregation and those outside of our congregation are involved in small groups. We pray in those small groups. Another way is to have a prayer partner. Have a prayer list. Realize prayer need not be long to be effective. Learn more. Be a continual student of prayer. I've got a number of books to recommend, and I'm going to list a bunch of prayer resources this week on my blog, PastorChipMiller.com. I have it there for this purpose, so I can put resources there if you want to get those. Leonard Ravenhill was a man who wrote a lot about prayer. He died a number of years ago, but he was a great model of prayer. And in his book, Why Revival Tarries, he said this, The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many resters, but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. People who are not praying are playing. Two prerequisites of dynamic Christian living are vision and passion, and both of these are generated by prayer. The ministry of preaching is open to a few, but the ministry of praying is open to every child of God. The secret of praying is praying in secret. A worldly Christian will stop praying. A praying Christian will stop worldliness. Ties may build the church, but tears will give it life. That is the difference between the modern church and the early church. Our emphasis is on paying. Theirs was on praying. When we have paid, the place is taken. When they had prayed, the place was shaken. And then he closed with In the matter of effective praying, never have so many left so much to so few. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. O God, as we come before you as a congregation, there's not a person here that we are not convicted as we see the priority. First of all, first of all in the church, there should be prayer for all kinds of people. And so you've invited us to enter your presence in prayer through our mediator, the Lord Jesus. We praise you for the wonderful revelation of your love for us in him. And we want to acknowledge before you this morning that our hope, our eternal hope, rests upon his life and his death and his resurrection. And because of that, you are worthy of our prayers and petitions and intercession and thanksgiving. You are worthy of all praise. For from you flow all the blessings and comforts of this life and those in the life to come. Forgive us for our lack of prayer. Forgive us for our self-sufficiency that expresses itself with our lack of prayer. Forgive us for the lack of faith and doubting your power that's revealed by our lack of prayer. We ask that beginning today, you'd make us a praying people, praying individuals, praying congregation. Make us a people who pray without ceasing. Cause us to find great joy in your presence. Cause us to yearn to be before your throne. Remove from us the fleeting pleasure that this world that distract us and set our hearts on the world to come. As you've commanded us, we pray today for those in authority over us in our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for those who humanly rule in other lands. We ask that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And we intercede especially this morning on behalf of our Christian brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith in other places. We pray for those who have been in prison for their faith. We ask that they might be strengthened, that they might be given freedom, and we ask that you would protect and provide for their families in their absence. And we ask that the gospel would go forth to the unreached peoples of the earth, that all types of people be brought to faith in Christ, those from every tribe and nation and tongue. Raise up laborers for the harvest. Thank you for the ransom of Christ that he paid for all people, not just for an exclusive small group. It's sufficient for all, and so we ask that you would bring to faith people from all backgrounds. May your love for all and ransom for all motivate us to bear witness to all, including our families and our friends. Please change the hearts of those with whom we have regular contact, even our family members who remain unconverted. May we be found as an intercessor on their behalf. Give them the gift of faith to believe in you, the one God, and Jesus, the one mediator. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You'll take your bulletin. There's a hymn, a song that puts puts this truth of God's ransom, Christ's ransom, to music in a special way. Let's stand and sing how deep the Father's love for us. for